0: This is the uh, real, really the first Sunday in the green seasons. Trinity Sunday, uh, I like to keep as part of the, even though it's not part of the 50 days. But then we shift and go into the green time, and so today is the first Sunday. And the uh, what's in your bulletin? We I put in from Vicky Black, the last couple of years, who's a deacon in Iowa. I think she wrote these books introducing the the church church year. And she said, This time of the year is uh, about our relationship with God, what the preacher should focus on. This is what this Uh is. Our relationship with Jesus Christ and with one another through our prayers, the sacraments and life in the body of Christ, the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, the church and its mission. And there are three readings today Uh, which all uh, remind me of what I say over and over again. My teacher, O.C. Edwards, my New Testament, one of them, uh, who said, it's not as important what the Bible says, it's important what the Bible means. So so there's a certain amount of interpretive work that needs to be done. uh, With the two readings I'm choosing, which is the one from Genesis I could have chosen First Samuel, which is where Samuel is told by God the people want a king. Go get the king, you know, Saul. These are good reads. If you want to read the Old Testament, uh, read First and Second Kings, First and Second Samuel. Those are all good stories. Uh, it's a one- way to sort of get into the Hebrew Bible, in my in my view. In any case, we have today, instead of that, an alternative reading that we're able to choose from Genesis, which is uh, part of the story of Adam and Eve. So I thought I'd say something about uh, Adam and Eve and what this story means. And then the Gospel, which is another example of the necessity to uh, read carefully and so on. You know, the United States is one of the most religious countries in the West. And it is also one of the most theologically ignorant countries (laughs) in the West. And it is one of the most biblically ignorant in the West. Even fundamentalists who claim to soak themselves in the scriptures, like all people, they have as few really important and pet texts that kind of get recycled over and over again, or there's a whole other subtext to what it is that they're trying to do in terms of their theological outlook, which is what we all do, but they sometimes um, are less open about it, in my my view. So this is an important uh, text from Genesis, and from Mark, you need to know how the Gospels get put together. So reading carefully is important. So I always worry... You know, the way the lectionary is, here's here's the problem nowadays, I think, we have a lot of scholarly people who've put this stuff all together, and they have sort of a sense of internal reasoning about it, but the average person will listen to this stuff and just go, what in the world does this all mean? And part of it has to do with not reading it also and thinking about what it means, That's why we give you, by the way, in the bulletin next week's readings so you have the opportunity to look them up and read through them and maybe you have some questions about what it is. In any case, Adam and Eve are in the garden and in this particular version in in Genesis, it says uh, they're hiding from God who is walking around at the time of the evening breeze. So, um, too much information. There are four sources for the writing of the Pentateuch or the Torah. The Yahweh strain, the Elohim strain, the priestly strain, and what's the other one, Ernest? J-E-P, and, and the Deuteronomy. Okay, so these are the four sources that put, put these writings together. So really we hear from the Yahweh strain today where God is very anthropomorphized, which is a fancy word of saying he's like, a, he's like us. So he's walking in the garden. And the Yahweh strain also when they have the story of Noah and the ark, and that's going to come up. Noah and the ark, they're all in the ark ready to go, and God comes up and shuts the door to the ark. So he's physically here. he's walking around, and he sees Adam and Eve. And he calls to them and asks why they're hiding. And Adam says, we're hiding because... Uh, he, or he said, I'm hiding because I'm naked and afraid. And God said, who told you you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I told you not to eat from? And Eve says, the serpent beguiled me, and I ate. There's so much here, and then we're going to go, we're going to go into something else that may still elude everybody, but I just was in a mood this week, so that's why you're getting all this stuff. So uh, what's happened in Christianity is, I don't know whether in certain strains of Judaism this evolved to be true too, but women got the blame for the fall. Right? And there are many uh, fundamentalist Christians in this country who believe that women damn the whole human race because of their behavior. Now, with a predisposition like that, where are we going to go here? Right? I mean, this is a situation, as I say to my dog Rags, Rags, this is a situation. With all this barking. So you know we 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 have to think about what in the world that means, and so um, most a lot of interpretation has focused on Eve's role in or women's role in the fall, and uh, the serpent has been interpreted as in, in Judaism later Judaism and Christianity as the source of evil, right, or as the devil. So we need to say something about that. When I was in seminary, there was a book published in 1973 by a Roman Catholic priest. He's a scholar, I think he's dead now, named George Tavard. And George Tavard was a member of a a religious order of men called the Assumptionists. And why I mention that is, is that have you ever heard of John Henry Newman, Cardinal Newman? He was an Anglican priest and he became a Roman Catholic in about 1845. And he made his submission to the Roman Catholic Church to an assumptionist in in, in Oxford, com- uh, apologizing for his muddy trousers. <laughs> in any case, uh, George Tavard wrote a book called Woman in Christian Tradition. And in the first part of the book, he, he elaborately goes into... The creation stories and the ancient languages and the names for Adam and Eve, which are generic names for like man and woman and so on. And he talks about this, but there's a line in it I have always remembered that I love. And that is, he said, it would be a pusillanimous tempter indeed who would have tempted the weakest link in the chain. So always keep that in mind when we think about the creation story and give give Eve the business about this situation. Later Judaism and Christianity have identified the serpent with Satan or evil. And in the biblical story, uh, the serpent or the snake is the source of temptation. So the issue is how do we get... How do we get to this situation? People are writing this later. Well, we were tempted. That's what this is about. It isn't about the devil. The word serpent was carried over in the English text from our original authorized version, which was the King James Bible, And it was referred to as the serpent, which is the same name for snake. I think in newer translations, snake would be more useful because serpent now has overtones. You're not going to be able to see this, but I got on a big, long thing. Here is a definition of serpent in the free dictionary. And here's a graph that shows the use of the word over time. So it was used a lot in the 1800s. Uh, and then it just has come down in two thousand and ten, not very much, so you and i don 't go around and saying there 's a serpent in the garden, i 've got to do something about it right We say there 's a snake in the garden, and that 's the thing. So these stories are also explanatory for early for the, for the original writers. right Why do people wear clothes, and the animals don 't wear clothes right? Why does a snake slither on the ground? These are all things that, you know, our people of inquiring mind want to have some knowledge about what it is. Why does the serpent crawl? And uh, so you need to see what I'm getting at is that the interpretation shows up over time with various groups who begin to read into the text and not without justification Uh, Things that actually aren't in it because they have something else to say. So here's another digression. And just the year, before I came to St. Luke's from Sausalito, I took a class on premarital counseling at the Church Divinity School of the Pacific. And I was in the class and the teacher was the professor of pastoral theology at CDSP then. And I don't know what the, why he did this, but one day in class he pointed at me and he said, what seminary did you go to? (laughs) And I said, uh, I went to Neshota House. And he said, well, I guess you know all about the Proto-Evangelium, don't you? And I said, actually, I do. (laughs) And that's in this text. The Proto-Evangelium is the first gospel. So people have read certain Christian groups into this final thing. Because you have done this, God says, Cursed are you among all animals and among all wild creatures. Upon your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. So it may sound like a stretch, but a lot of early Christians said this is about Jesus and Mary. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. I will put enmity between you. So the interpreters looked at that and said, well, this is obviously uh, a prediction of the coming of Jesus. I'm going to let you think about all of that because uh, they've called it the Proto-Evangelium forever. And uh, I don't know quite what that all means either, but it's there. And uh, we might want to sort that out at the question and answer period. But just chew on it and see what you think. So we come to Mark. And here's an example. All of the Gospels were put together by somebody. In other words, we have the oral tradition. We have people repeating these stories. And by the way, you you, you need to uh, know that while there are differences uh, Illiterate people can transmit uh, stories with a fair degree of accuracy because they don't have any other way to do it. So when you test people for how they have faithfully transmitted things, often you'd be surprised. But sometimes there are differences, and some of you may have been somewhere where the exercise has been done. We did it in seminary. Uh, Father Hunt had us do this where he told the first person here, told Elizabeth Ross, a story and said, tell the next person, and the next person tells them, and then we get to Patrick Waddell, and uh, tell us the story, and it's pretty different. You know, I mean, not, uh, there are similarities, but it's not always the same. Uh, that assumes certain things, though, too, about the quality of our memory as, as contemporary people. Whereas in, in parts of the world even today, I would guess that the Ayatollah Khomeini knew the entire Koran by heart. Mm-hmm. You know, he knew it by heart. So, and there are people that, that I know who knows the Psalms by heart. In, in English, and, and I'm sure there are Jews who know the Psalms by heart because they have uh, worked on it. But in some cultures, it's easier to, to do that. So this is an important thing. So what we have here is a story that begins and then something gets sandwiched between it editorially and then another thing gets added afterwards. So we have Jesus in his, in his home. Te- the crowd's coming around him. His family trying to rescue him from the crush. The people in the crowd are saying he's beside himself. Right? He's so. And he's not so because he's cast out some demons. And so all of a sudden the scribes get introduced into this reading. And the scribes are accusing Jesus of uh, casting out demons because he's Beelzebul or Beelzebub, which is another name for the devil. And so then there's a controversy. And then Jesus says some things in response to that. And then he says another little, teeny, short parable. And then he gets to something that uh, perhaps may be the meat of the whole thing. And that is, well, there are two things. One is, he said, uh, the the, the only real sin, (coughs) the only real blasphemy is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. That people will be forgiven these blasphemies. But blasphemy... Against the Holy Spirit is the unforgivable sin. So, a long time ago, a, a theologian that I used to read uh, said, tacked on to the beeisable controversy is the very difficult saying about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, a saying that has played a somewhat macabre role in the history of Christian piety people have had fantastic ideas that they have somehow inadvertently committed this unforgivable sin and that in so doing, they have condemned themselves unwittingly to everlasting damnation. In our bathroom, we have a cartoon from the New Yorker magazine on a bulletin board where uh, God is in heaven And standing at a podium just like this, and there's a guy down below sort of looking up, and he looks over, God is going like this, and he looks at him and said, No, that's not a sin either. Gee, you must have worried yourself to death. (laughs) Many do. You know, one of the difficulties that we face now, uh, in, in, right now, in our culture, is an enormous hostility to all mention of the God issue, to all mention of any kind of way in which people uh, are to think about that. And they immediately fast forward to all of the abuses and the difficulties that people have been sep- uh, subjected to because of uh, what they're told they need to do. People who feel keenly that they finally said, I'm bailing because I just simply cannot go along with this. I don't want to be walking around anymore thinking that each, I'm walking on eggs, you know. Ernest said something of, uh, in, within the past year or year and a half about, you know, uh, you're told in, in some of these circles that you've been saved because your belief in Jesus, but for the rest of the time you're walking on eggs with the view that it might uh, be revoked if you make some huge mistake, right? So it doesn't uh, really give you much confidence in Father Brewer saying, God unconditionally accepts, loves, and forgives us. Because there are people who say, no, it's not true. And other people who say, well, I was told the opposite, and I don't even want to go there. I don't even want to talk about it, you know? Our text has nothing to do with such fantasies, nor does it, as a more, recent interpreter, more recent interpreters have often contended, have the purely general meaning of, meaning of calling evil good and good evil. Rather, it has to do quite specifically with Jesus' exorcisms and his implicit claim about himself. The blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is to fail to see that Jesus' works are the acts of the power of God at work in his person. It is to deny that Jesus' view what he believed God was doing in himself. Now you and I have got to wrestle with that because there are parts in the gospel where that is exactly true what he says. So we sometimes have to go uh, to some interpretive nip-ups to sort of get out of it. Maybe another way to speak about this I did a couple of weeks ago is this. When you read in John's Gospel, Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No- what, nobody comes to the Father except through me. Well, for David Brewer, that's what I believe. I believe that. Now, the question is, I'm a committed believer. I'm in. But what do you tell people who aren't? And what do you tell people who aren't in light of the fact that um, uh, they can be immediately uh, made aware of the plurality of the way in which people approach uh, their belief? What do you do? What do you do? And so we have to always think about the exclusive claims that Christian people say about themselves, but to also speak in terms of inclusion. And this is the tension that we live in, yes and no at the same time, you know? And in this gospel, we have that, But the other piece, which here I'm going on and on, is maybe the most important one for me in terms of its application to our contemporary life, and that's Jesus' comments on the family. Your brothers and sisters, uh, your mother is waiting for you. Who uh, is my mother, my brothers, and my sister? These are my mother, my brothers, and my sister. The family of God. So throughout the gospel, Jesus stands at a critical distance from even the contemporarily held views of his own group with regard to family and what constitutes family. and we're in the midst of a situation now where we're living through I'm a baby boomer and here we are living through a situation where the all bets are off right we have now a new interpretation of the na- uh, the nature uh, of family that has developed organically within the culture you know So we're always put in the Ralph Cramden situation, or many Christians are, right? You can't put a square peg in a round hole. Yes, you can if you force it, you know. But there's no force involved. It's just the way it is, you know. As they say on sports talk radio, it is what it is. (laughs) So Jesus is speaking now about the family of God. This isn't to diss his brothers and sisters and his mother. It's merely to say that I'm giving you now a more gospel-centered view of the nature of family. It's all of us. Not to use the vocabulary, this is special pleading on my part. I I get nervous when people talk about their parish as the parish family. And the reason I get nervous about it is because families don't get along. (laughs) you know families have troubles so it's okay with me if you understand what that means when you use it but it's always like the parish family is this harmonious whole that is getting along together it's just making sweet music from one moment to the next you know so without lapsing into cynicism we have to be realistic about the nature of family you know and his, parent, his family is saying he's, he's, out of, he's nuts. You know, crazy. Anyway, the lesson this week is, I think, a couple of... Uh, see, if you, see if you can read the Bible once in a while. <laughs> and uh, come, come with questions. Because there are many things that uh, deliver themselves up to us when we read the biblical text. Um, You know, I mentioned this before. Uh, What is the most commonly quoted passage in the New Testament? All right. Most knowing people would say, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that that he gave his only begotten son to the end that all that believe in him should not perish, but have eternal life. But most people in the surveys answer, God helps those who help themselves. And that's not in the Bible. (laughs) (laughs) Benjamin Franklin said it. So it's necessary to to remind ourselves continuously of that. But uh, remember, in the midst of all me saying this, when God's judgment and God's mercy collide, God's mercy always trumps God's judgment. And we have ample biblical support for that. And ample support for it in the church's teaching. And so remember that this week. And uh, <clears throat> you are made in God's image. And by virtue of that, you're able to uh, triumph over evil. I forgot to say in the Genesis account, what this means is that although we don't read it and see it there, human, humanity can and will triumph over evil. That's the good news.